Hello there, you're listening to the Babies in Common podcast, where parents, parents parents-to-be, and professionals can join together and talk about all things pregnancy, birth, feeding, babies, and parenting, and you don't even have to put on pants. So join me, Jeanette, an IBCLC lactation consultant, childbirth educator, mostly retired birth doula, and mother of two, and my colleague, Melissa, a labor, delivery, postpartum nurse, breastfeeding counselor, and mother of three, as we have a conversation with our special guests. We hope you enjoy today's episode and let us know your thoughts and learn more about what classes, groups, and services we provide by going to our website, babiesincommon.com. All right, let's get going. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Babies in Common show. I'm Jeanette. And I'm Melissa. Welcome, listeners. As a reminder, this show is not to be taken as medical advice. Please consult your own care providers for questions about you or your baby's health and visit babiesincommon.com slash disclaimer to read more. Today is Wednesday, August 12th, 2020, and we will be discussing relationships. For many couples, the arrival of a baby puts a new spin on how you communicate, how you see each other, how you work together as parents, and how you love each other. And yeah, and so we asked our special guest, my friend Rachel Gerard Smook, um, to tell us how she's helped many people navigate life with a baby and as a couple. And so Rachel's a licensed clinical psychologist in private practice who specializes in working with women and um, talks with people specifically about fertility struggles, pregnancy, birth, new parenthood. And she's also a Gottman Method couples therapist, which she'll tell us a little bit about. Her practice is located in Northborough, Massachusetts, but she offers consultations via video conference as well. She's also somebody who documents families' important moments in their lives. As a professional photographer, she's very talented. And if anybody's seen that picture of me holding a boob, she took it. Uh, Uh, (laughs) That's classic. (laughs) Yeah, it's classic. And um, she is really talented at catching the joy in people's eyes for sure. And she's also a very talented singer. And she lives in central Massachusetts with her wife and their three children. Thanks Thanks for for joining us today, Rachel. Thank you. This is fun. So you know how I love definitions, so let's start with a few. According to the American Psychological Association, psychologists, which Rachel is one, are highly trained professionals with expertise in the areas of human behavior, mental health assessment, diagnosis and treatment, and behavior change. Psychologists work with patients to change their feelings and attitudes and help them develop healthier, more effective patterns of behavior. Psychotherapy is a collaborative effort between an individual and a mental health professional. Psychologists consider maintaining your confidentiality extremely important and will answer your questions regarding those rare circumstances when confidential information must be shared. Mm -hmm. So Rachel, so you have a PhD in psychology, which is different than some of the other people who provide therapy. There's different, I don't know, are they, would you call them, are they levels? Like, is there a point where you start off as somebody going to see a mental health counselor versus a social worker versus a psychologist? Or do you feel like, like, tell us more about that? Because I've always wondered, I think I know, but I'm curious, what's the real answer? Yeah, the training is different. So there is some overlap. There's sort of a core set of information that everybody in all of those disciplines um, needs to know. Um, And, but mental health counselors in Massachusetts, and social workers um, stop at the master's level and psychologists have a doctorate and then required doctoral clinical time in order to place. So it's just more time spent in training. Um, And usually with the ability to specialize. 
So what inspired you to go into clinical psychology and private practice, especially? Hmm. Um, I always wanted to, I, I, when I was in middle school, we had to research a career that we were interested in. And I researched clinical psychology. It, it has always been something that I was drawn to. Um, I am really interested in people's stories. I always have been. And I think that, um, you know, we're all on this ride together. And so being able to offer support to the people that I work with and being able to kind of be a real person in the room, um, getting through everything as well is something that I consider a privilege and take, um, take very seriously. So I, I've always wanted to do it. I love doing it. Um, my practice sort of evolves and changes as the years go by, but, um, but I really like um, being invited into people's lives in the way that I am and um, having a chance to offer them some backup and support as they figure out their next steps. Awesome. So I know, um, Melissa, you've mentioned um, on this show before that you've also experienced therapy. I've experienced it as well. And I know it's more and more accepted in our culture. And many of the people that we work with, Melissa and I, like they are now starting to or have already been going to a therapist of some sort. Therapy for everyone is what I say. Yes, right. (laughs) It should be. But so, Rachel, can you, for people who haven't experienced it, can you describe what a a therapy session would be like? How long is it? What happens? And for those who haven't found the right therapist for them, how do people go through finding those people that are the right fit for them? Right. So, so therapy requires um, healing through a relationship, right? So like any other relationship in your life, match is really important. It's critical. Um, I don't think you can do the work without it. Um, and so part of finding a therapist is finding somebody that you feel safe with, that you feel comfortable with, um, that has a style of communicating that's specific. Most of the time, people have a pretty good gut sense about that. Um, a lot of us offer phone consultations or email consultations beforehand just to let people get a sense of who we are before they make that first appointment. Um, and then I tell everybody that you're not signing your life away if you come to my office. Like you're allowed to see if it feels okay and if I'm the right person for you to be working with um, and if it's like my skills are a good fit for your um, And if so, then we go ahead and make another appointment. And if not, then at that point I provide a referral. Um, because again, you, you can't do it um, unless you feel safe and comfortable to do it. So that's the first piece. Um, and what a session looks like is um, mostly it's a conversation. It starts off with me asking a fair number of questions as I get to know my clients. And then it transitions from there into uh, them bringing in whatever it's important to them to talk about. And as I get to know them, I start to pick up themes and um, and to hear things that they may not be aware of that they are repeating or that seem to tie together. And then it's my job to kind of identify and ask about those things. Um, it's always a collaboration. So I have some expertise about this field and about human behavior and how emotions work. And I bring that and my clients have expertise about their lives and about their histories and their needs. And so it's in putting together those sets of um, things that we know so well that we come up with something that's greater than either one of those two parts. So it's very much a collaborative, 
process and a conversation. And I often work with people for, um, for a long time. And so as we go along, we know each other quite well. And, um, and I can say things like, oh, okay, this is that thing that's come up for you six other times. And here we are again, what's going to happen now? And I can sort of bring it around. I use a lot of humor in my work, pass out a lot of tissues. Um, I remember that was always the hardest part for me. I'd be towards the, you know, I'd be in the middle of like a deep thing and I'd be crying and then she'd be like, and our time is up. <laughs> so I, I mean, sometimes that is inevitable, but I try to help people kind of contain it again before they have to leave because it doesn't feel good to anyone to sit sobbing in the parking lot after seeing me and I, and I don't want my clients to hate coming in. So I try to help them leave it in a place that feels okay. Do you like, from what I understand, therapists tend to, what I've always heard is that it's a 50 minute session. Is that the case for you as well? I tend to do about a 45 minute session. Um, knowing that everybody needs a couple of minutes to kind of wind down and get out the door and I don't want to be chasing anyone out. So um, we meet for about 45 minutes and we take five minutes to deal with next appointments and payments and, um, and saying goodbye. And then that gives me 10 minutes to do everything else there is in my day before my next person. So, Perfect. So Rachel, what would you say is the goal of therapy? Uh, and let's talk about like couples therapy, for example, mm -hmm. since that we're, that's what we're talking about today. Um, and I know that's a loaded question, but, um, for people that might be thinking like, well, what's the point? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, we've been together so long, there's nothing that she could figure out about us that we don't already know. What would you say maybe is like the goal that people might consider? Yeah. Well, for any therapy, the goal is to, to feel better, to have your life work better and to feel like you are enjoying yourself most of the time. So um, often, you know, when people come in, it's because that isn't true and hasn't been true for a really long time. Um, with couples, I would agree with you that they know more about their couplehood than I do. Um, I know probably more about the research about how relationships work and how we can integrate that into the relationships that we're actually living. Um, and so again, we, we put those things together. We put that um, knowledge together and come up with some ideas about how to change things. You know, most of the time for couples, um, there's a communication gap. I'm not sure I've ever seen a couple where that's not true. Um, and so that's pretty predictable. We, we, when we're together for a long time, we start speaking shorthand or sort of assuming the other person already knows what we're thinking or what we need. Um, or we're just using communication styles that worked fine at one time, but no longer do. And so often what happens is that as communication falls apart, connection falls apart. Um, relationships get distant, people start feeling more like roommates. And so um, part of what I'm doing is helping people build new connections. You know, I. I tell clients that we're not in the business of going back to what you used to have because as life moves on, so does your relationship. But we are in the business of um, recreating that initial fondness and admiration piece that made you want to connect to each other in the first place. Um, and I've never seen a couple yet 
that can't benefit from some more skills and how they talk to one another. Um, I, that's true for all of us. And so my office is a place to practice that stuff. Um, the goal of couples therapy is to not need me in the room, right? So um, I'm not working so much as a referee as I am kind of a coach in those situations and helping people learn how to communicate about stuff that they have lost track of how to do. I think there's so much on television and in our culture that makes people feel like, well, if you've been together a long time, you're not going to be that happy anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just sort of a normal thing that things fall apart. You don't, you're not as intimate anymore. You might fight more often. And that's sort of normal, especially if that's the kind of relationship you've seen other older people in your family, your parents, et cetera, go through. So I think that's one piece too that I would just highlight that it is possible to have a relationship where most of the time you're pretty happy and you actually like to be together. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's important to know that that's not the same as having that new relationship feeling as when you first met. There's a huge dopamine boost that comes with that, which is the neurochemical that makes us feel good. And, and it's, um, it's what's there as we're falling in love in really high amounts. And it's not there way down the road in the same amounts. And that's okay. Um, but you can rebuild that experience of feeling really excited to be with your partner and treasuring your time together and looking forward to talking with one another, especially when the same six things that you tend to argue about um, kind of get worked out. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually, um, I love what you said. I, I think of myself more as a coach than a referee. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people think that couples therapy is going to be, well, she said this and he said that. And, and like, well, who's right. You know, right. like you tell you us, Rachel, who's you right. You said the word always. The therapist said, don't say always. Yeah. Don't say you never, you know, <laughs> but, um, you know, and I'm a nurse. So it's funny that you mentioned communication because so much of, when we have, um, you know, issues with in, in healthcare between nurses and doctors and, and patients, a lot of times it comes down to communication, right? Like it's always about communication and communicating better and saying what you actually need and not assuming people know what you want. And so, you know, in all relationships, not just intimate relationships, communication is, is key, right? So mm -hmm. thinking about communication, let's start with pregnancy. What yeah. are the conversations that you recommend expecting couples have for starters to better navigate the changes that they are about to encounter because mm -hmm. it is a life-changing experience to say it lightly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. I mean, I often tell clients, especially when they're feeling um, some shame around needing to come in as a couple following the birth of a baby, um, that this is a bomb going off in your relationship. And in lots of ways, it's a very nice bomb. You know, there's lots of good stuff about having a baby, but it does change how couples interact with one another. And, um, and that's okay as long as you have some skills to navigate those changes. And so um, I think there's a lot of stuff that you just can't know until your baby shows up. It's one thing to imagine what it's gonna be like to be parents. And it's another thing to have the actual person in front of you with their own dynamics that they show up on the planet um, bringing to the mix and needing to integrate that. So um, I don't think that you can know ahead of time and be prepared for all the parts, but I do think it's really important to talk about your expectations, um, to talk about your hopes for how you'll support one another. Um, 
I think it's a really good time to take a look at your own history, your own parenting, um, family dynamics that are important to you or that you may not want to replicate. Um, if you're feeling anxious about it, um, I think a lot of couples avoid talking about that because nobody wants to be the one to say, to say, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I'm worried about this baby coming in that feels, eh. um, but of course people are worried about that. And so finding a way to allow that conversation to be there actually takes some of the sting out of it if it is a difficult adjustment. Yeah, expectations are huge. I see couples over the years where, you know, you, you got the new baby and usually I'm talking with the the birth birthing person who had the baby and they're like, well, my partner's not doing this and my partner's not helping with this and my partner's not helping with this, you know, and I'm thinking, did you know they were going to be like that before you had a child? And then there's other partners who are so involved and they want to be so involved and it can almost be too much, you know, for the other partner, like, dude, like back off, you know? So it's so key to have that conversation ahead of time. But I love what you said too. Like you can't always predict everything because you're not going to know until you have that real person in front of you mm -hmm. for sure. I remember with my first baby that, um, I, I just kind of felt like I was going to have to go to college with her because I would not be able to put her down yet by that age. You know, she just needed so much all the time. And so for my second baby, we did a lot of prep about that, about, you know, how are we going to deal with each other when you can't put the baby down ever? And my second baby was like, if you would set me down, I would go to sleep. And he just didn't need those same skills at all. It was, you know, parenting an entirely different person. But having the ability to sort of anticipate that stuff and talked about it um, made it easier to navigate his infancy. Yeah. 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 I think I, you know, I teach a new baby in postpartum ready class and it, you know, I start off class by saying, um, this is not going to be about baby care. Uh, meaning we're not going to talk about how to diaper and swaddle and bathe a baby. Cause you can look that up on YouTube. We're going to talk about what is it actually like to have a newborn baby in your house and how does that rock your world and your relationship? Because a lot of people don't realize like when you have a baby, it's not just that your relationship is harder because you are, um, you have another responsibility. I mean, that is something to be said for that, but you likely have never had to collaborate in this way for something so important. Many couples, I can speak personally about this, could really just kind of live in their own little island. I mean, yeah, you'd fight about who left dishes in the sink, but really, if they didn't pull their weight, it wasn't as big of a deal when you weren't sleep deprived and, um, you know, hormonal and recovering from delivery and, uh, you know, not able to fill each other's cup up in the same way that you can when you don't have a child in the mix, you know? So um, the other thing that you mentioned that really stuck out to me was, you know, kind of talking with your partner about your, the way you were, you know, raised and, and how, what kind of things about the way you grew up, you want to replicate and what things you don't, um, you know, a lot of that stuff comes up, um, and it kind of hits you in the face, like, um, feelings of, you know, childhood abandonment or, um, discipline and uh, just the relationship that you might have had or not had with a mother or a father um, can really just come out of nowhere if you didn't ever take the time to kind of work through those issues. Now you have this baby that you are that parent for and that can really kind of come up. So I don't even, 
I mean, I think it's a great idea to just kind of go to therapy for yourself before you have a baby. I feel like a lot of, a lot of pregnant people are suffering from anxiety and depression perinatally in pregnancy, um, never mind postpartum. And of course, the number one risk factor for postnatal, so postpartum depression or anxiety is having depression or anxiety in the other times of your life or in pregnancy. So, um, you know, a lot of those issues can just kind of come up in a big way when you are in that vulnerable new parent state. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the more that we can normalize getting some support with that stuff, um, the easier it is to manage and the easier it is to, to treat and to get through. So important. I know that, um, you have worked with many of my clients, not because you ever tell me, but because they tell me, um, around postpartum depression, anxiety, loss of a child, birth trauma. And I know it's super helpful, but can you share a little bit about how you help people who are struggling with things that are that serious versus, um, I think, I mean, everything is serious, but sometimes getting to know yourself a little bit better and just weren't learning on communication is a little lighter, you know, than anxiety and depression and loss and trauma, especially. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think part of it, the, the first thing, anytime that there is something that serious taking place is making sure that everybody's safe. Um, you know, I always talk about the difference between um, suicidal thoughts and suicidal intent, you know, um, to make it safe to talk about that stuff because I wanna know if people are feeling that way. I don't want them to be afraid to bring it up to me. And I wanna be very clear about my parameters. This is stuff I can hold in my office and I can hold in these conversations. And here's where we cross the line into needing to get you some outside help. at a hospital setting. So most people don't wind up there, um, but they're more likely to if they keep it to themselves and don't talk it out. And so I right away try to open that stuff up. Um, It's hard to think clearly and it's hard to feel better when you never sleep. And so we're always talking about sleep with new babies. Um, um, I learned with my own oldest child that when people would say, how is she sleeping? I learned to say, like a baby. Um, and that would satisfy most people. And I had a place that was safe for me to go to say, I am so exhausted. I have not had a good night's sleep in six months and I don't know what to do. And, you know, being able to kind of let off some of the steam and pressure about that helped me cope with it. Um, some of the work around anxiety and depression is specific to behavior change. So there are things that you can do to help yourself in those moments, skills that are helpful in calming down if you're feeling panicky, um, in getting moving if you're feeling depressed and feeling like you can't get off the couch. Um, so some of it is specific skills and strategies. And a lot of it, again, is just relationship. When we are hurting, we need other people who get it. Um, and with, with me, with any therapist, you don't have to worry about burning that person out or, um, whether they'll judge you for having a hard time with what's supposed to be this happy, joyful time or, um, repeating yourself or any of those things. It's okay to do that stuff in therapy. And so some of what's healing is just the space and the relationship. And, you know, I, I tell people fairly often that, you know, I've been doing this for 20 whatever years and I still don't really know how it works. You know, there's some kind of alchemy that takes place in the room 
um, when you invite people to be their truest selves, whatever that looks like, and when you receive that um, with acceptance and things change. So um, people feel better after they give themselves this kind of experience. Hmm. Very true. So I actually had a question for you, Rachel. I have no statistics to back this up, but, um, you know, in my uh, experience as, um, you know, someone who talks to a lot of new parents, um, and I mostly talk to women, so certainly this is a one-sided thing, but, uh, you know, if I bring up like, hey, well, what about couples therapy? A lot of times I hear, oh, my husband would never do that. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, so, you know, do you encounter that, um, that, you know, maybe there's partners that, you know, are very hesitant? And if so, um, do you have any advice for um, the partner in the relationship that does want therapy? I don't want to be sexist. It could be that the, you know, same sex couple or even like the male partner in the relationship wants the therapy and the female doesn't. I'm sure that that exists too. But like I said, I mostly talk to the moms. Um, you know, any advice if, you uh, have a partner who you really want to learn to communicate and connect with better, but is very hesitant to go to therapy. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, just to normalize that experience, I think it's most couples. I, I occasionally will get a couple coming in where both people are equally sort of into that idea, but, but most of the time somebody is not sure about it at all. Um, and so I, I advise people not to let a reluctant partner stop you from trying. Um, a lot of times my job in that situation is to is just to help everyone feel safe and comfortable. And, and once they figure out that I'm just a person having a conversation with them and, you know, not a big scary doctor who's going to do um, some kind of stuff that they don't understand, then people will settle in. Um, I also really do believe you cannot mandate therapy and have it be successful. And so um, if there's a person who really truly will not come in, that has implications for the relationship, but it doesn't prevent the partner who wants to be there from coming in. And I think it's very possible to do couples therapy with one person in the room. And the reason is that we get into habits and patterns with our partners. And so if I do this and you do this and I do this and you do this, and this is how our relationship kind of chugs along. If I start doing this over here, something changes here as well. It's not possible to continue on the same way if someone is making changes. And so one way or another that can shift things. Um, and a lot of times I'll start off seeing one person and it becomes clear pretty quickly that it's a couple's therapy. And so at that point, I'll either invite the other person in or refer the couple out, um, and keep working with the individual, but, um, coming in and not being sure about it is okay. That's, that's often part of it. And so you have now you're using, or you, I, on your website, it said you have Gottman method training. And what is that? I read a little bit about it. It sounds really cool. And they've got some really cool graphics of a house and all these different topics. But how has that informed your practice and how do you use that with people? Um, it completely changed it. So, And, and what is it? Um, so Gottman Method Couples Therapy um, was devised by um, a therapist couple, um, John and Julie Gottman. And together they have amassed the largest body of relationship research that we have in our whole field. Um, and their couples therapy 
method and their interventions come straight out of that research. And so um, I used to feel, and I, I, a lot of therapists probably feel um, like couples therapy is sort of glorified individual therapy. And I honestly never really felt like I knew what I was doing um, because mm. it doesn't work to do individual therapy when there are two people. Um, and the Gottman method, because it's solid, it's based in research, it gives a lot of very clear information about what to change, what to try, how to open stuff up that's been shut down. Um, one of the first things that I share with couples is, um, this research shows that of the things that couples tend to argue about, 69% uh, of it is fundamentally unresolvable, and then mm. it's from values differences. Wow. And um, that, when I first heard it, I thought, well, we're all doomed then. Yeah. So how do we fix that? Um, but, but actually what it means is that you clean up the 31% of stuff that you really just can fix, and that's relatively straightforward. And it changes the goal about what to do when you have a, a, an argument that's based in a values difference because we don't compromise our values. Nobody does. Um, and so often what happens in traditional couples therapy or at home is that people try to find a compromise. People try to find a midpoint. And nobody feels good about that because each person has given up something that they actually really need or care about when we shift how we think about addressing our values to a lens of understanding rather than compromise takes the anger out of it. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, if you think about this person being here and this person being here and they're on both sides of this really big problem, right? Pushing at the problem doesn't solve it, doesn't move it. But if you come to a place of understanding, then you're on the same team addressing the problem. And from that place, you can really make important changes. You don't change someone's mind necessarily, but you do change their receptiveness to what's important um, to you, to them, um, as your family dynamic. And it's very powerful stuff um, to, see, to see a partner who's been struggling really get it, like, oh, that's why she does this. That's why he always says that. I never knew it meant that to him. Hard to be angry at somebody that you really understand and empathize with. And so the Gottman method of therapy is aimed at, um, at getting people on the same page in terms of what they know about each other, what they understand and empathize with about the other person. And that changes how they talk. Wow, that sounds really cool. Like really deep and different it's not just differing perspectives you're not saying well i want you to understand my perspective but you're also saying this is the history behind that this is why this is where they're coming from just understand that and then it like even just i would imagine that the love grows too because instead yeah. of saying i mean there's no specific example that we're giving here but but if you're frustrated with somebody because you're like why do you keep saying no to this and then you're like oh my gosh i didn't know that's why oh my gosh well then i don't have to be so hard on my want wanting to do that or see it that way exactly. it just i can imagine yeah that that would yeah be and it you know it's often a revelation for the person who mm. feels that way too right because we don't we don't know all of our own stuff we don't know all of our motivations and so it's pretty common 
that as I'm asking people to trace, you know, where did that feeling come from? When's the first time that you remember feeling that way? Um, how long have you been doing this? That something will come up and they'll realize like, oh my gosh, it's because of this thing that way back when was a really significant event to me that I, I didn't even realize I was bringing into this now. Um, and so both partners often have this experience of, oh, wow. And, and again, when you have an oh, wow moment, it's hard to be angry. Um, and so when you're talking without being angry, you're more likely to be able to problem solve and make decisions. The other thing I'll say is for people who haven't experienced therapy with somebody who they resonated with, one thing that I noticed was that the way that you, other therapists, you know, your therapist has a way of wording things and questioning things and coming around to different avenues that somebody that cares about you who's just in your relationship with you and they say, well, why do you think that way? Or where does that come from? Why would you say that? What happened, what happened to you when you were a child that makes you think this? Those ways of asking the question, you may get the same answer from a th like through therapy, but it's because the therapist asked it in a different way. And I think sometimes too, whether it's individual or couples, I imagine that some of what you do, if you could speak to this, is that you also are guiding people about you have a right to set your own boundaries. And I know that was something that was interesting to me, you know, to sort of, I always felt like, well, of course I already know that. And then when you hear it in a different way, in a much calmer way with a broader description of what that actually means and that you have a right to do this and you have a right to do this because it's your life. And then how do you implement that with the people you need to set the boundaries with? But also in a couple situation, you may need to set a boundary or you may need to open up some conversation that you didn't know how to open that up before and the way that you say it to their partner might finally get their partner to go oh okay I'll answer this now <laughs> yeah weird. and that, you know I mean I tend to look at the things that people struggle with still through an adaptive lens you know our job as little people um, when we're born when we're little is um, to survive right and so we're hardwired to please our parents to make them want to keep us alive that's mm. part of the evolutionary work of, of personhood right and so what that looks like in each family is different um, and so kids get really good at um, doing what their parents expect of them even if those expectations are difficult or flawed or problematic or harmful. Um, and so whatever we grow up being really good at, we're still really good at as adults, right? Even if we don't still need it in the same way um, and for the same purposes. Interesting. So, yeah. So it, it's a it's a kinder way to look at the stuff that's hard and that causes you problems. Like, why did you build that skill? Why did that become something that you were so good at? Chances are, at some point you needed to be. So, okay, that's fine. Let's find where that is. And then let's talk about how to leave it there and build a different set of skills for the now that's calling for something else. Um, and when you don't have to struggle against just that human reality of, you know, having learned some things by accident or having developed a way of behaving that actually doesn't suit you anymore, that's okay. We can move forward. We can do it differently now is a very powerful intervention. The other thing too, you can see 
Not only because you're also human and you're getting to know someone in a therapy session, but because of the way you've been trained, you can start to realize as the person, like if I was in therapy with you, which we wouldn't do that because we know each other, <laughs> we've known each other too long. But, but like if I started talking, you, you'd say, well, you actually, do you notice that when you describe this, you say like this all the time? Or do you realize that you're, you know, and it's stuff that you may never have picked up yourself. And you may have told the same story to 10 of your friends and never, and so, and feel like you've said it the same way every time, but you've never picked up on something that your therapist is going to come and kind of go pick out like, oh, do you, did you realize you said it that way? And how do you, why, 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 <laughs> you know? Yes. And it, I, you know, the reason is that you have said it the exact same way to your friends for all the time. You know, I have a, I have a best friend from high school, so we've known each other 30, whatever years. And, um, we have a very similar cadence. The way that we speak is very similar. And so her husband always thinks that, that she sounds like me and I get the feedback that I sound like her. And we don't remember which of us started talking like that. We've been doing it for decades now. Right. And the same thing happens with, with conversation patterns. And so your friends can't see it. They know mm -hmm. you, your family can't see it. They're too much in the mix. And it's not that, um, I mean, yes, we have some training about how to watch for those patterns and how to help identify them in a way that feels okay. Um, but there's, there's no magic to being a therapist. Um, you know, my therapist can pick out stuff that I never would have noticed. Um, and the reason is that she's outside of my life. Hmm. You know, she's not in the mix with me doing all the stuff that I do all the time. And so, um, she's able to see things that I can't see from in the middle of all that Michigan. So I think it's, um, it's therapy itself that lends itself to those kinds of observations. Mm. That's very thought provoking. <laughs> I love talking to therapists, even if I'm not the part, you know, getting therapy. I just, it's so right. interesting. We had, Makes you think. Um, yeah, like we had another episode with um, Jill Felicky. She's a midwife that became a, a psychiatric nurse practitioner. I don't remember the number of episode, but it was earlier in our podcast uh, history. And, and she, yeah, it's just so interesting that when you, when you, talk to someone who knows how to talk to people, right? That's just, um, that, that isn't intimately related to you as a family or a friend that isn't going to even fall into their own patterns of, oh, you, you know, just ignore that when he does that, or, you know, their, their own, their same old, <laughs> same old advice. Right. Yeah. Um, so I actually have a question. Ignore that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, you know how they are. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I have a question. Is there a time in, I don't know if there's any statistics on this, so uh, enlighten me. Is there a time in uh, a parenting, like an age of a child, let's say, or, or a stage of, 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 of at childhood or adolescence in which couples are getting divorced or separating at a higher rate? Mm. Um, and if so, you know, what advice um, would you offer to someone who might feel like they're heading down that, that path? So, I mean, the first year is notoriously the most difficult. Um, the adjustment is so huge. The first year with the first baby, um, although the first year with any baby is a tricky place. Um, and again, because you don't cope well when you're exhausted and there's some exhaustion that comes with having a new baby. Um, and sometimes a lot of exhaustion comes with having a new baby. 
Um, and so it's a hard time to solve problems and you have this whole other skill set being called for that you haven't had time to develop yet. Um, that's a that's a difficult time for most couples. Um, and it's hard because nobody's looking for that to be a difficult time. Like it's supposed to be a cool thing. It's supposed you're to be blissful, right, Rachel? Like you're supposed to just yeah. love every moment. Like <laughs> if so I could just happy. slap everybody who says yeah. that, like I don't love every moment. Not every moment is enjoyable and not everybody okay. <laughs> not everybody even loves their baby right away or maybe they love the baby but they don't like their baby uh, that's I something how that, that feels yeah, that's, <laughs> some very that. <laughs> mm. and the that nobody talks about is that sometimes when you have another baby you don't like your older one for a while you don't mm. feel less connected that the bonding is interrupted in some way you know i remember looking at my three-year-old and thinking like she is enormous and obnoxious and like, yes. I, oh my we, gosh. Yes. <laughs> you know, and she's like tearing down the walls and I don't like that. And it, and feeling awful. Yes. Awful. So guilty for not feeling the same amount of, you know, love and connectedness to her that I had built in those first couple of years. Um, you know, I think the other thing, uh, so many things I want to say in response mm. to that um, one of the things is that statistically we know that um, after a baby is born, um, for heterosexual couples, that men often have kind of a plateau of their relationship satisfaction, and women's relationship satisfaction continues to decline. Um, and oh. so hmm. that is just a Thing that happens and again if we can if we can get in there if we can arrest that slide um, by normalizing support by normalizing connection by normalizing therapy um, then then we can sort of undo some of the damage that might otherwise happen at that time um, the other thing is that anytime that there's a major transition um, anytime that there is a child crisis um, that's a tough time for a marriage. I had a colleague say to me once, you're only as happy as your least happy child. And it is the single most helpful hmm. thing anybody has said to me about. Parenting. Wow. That is profound. Yeah. I, um, <laughs> because at the time that she said it, I had a kid that was having a really hard time and I then was having a really hard time. Um, and if I had just kind of known that that was okay and that I, you know, I wasn't failing my kid or myself or my partner. Um, I might have spoken up a little bit sooner. I think sometimes, um, I mentioned before shame in the, in the parenting experience and it is a powerful inhibitor to help. Hmm. Um, a lot of times when someone doesn't want to come in, it's because they're feeling some shame about what's happened in their relationship or, or what kind of a parent they are, or the fact that they're having a hard time with this um, new little person that's living in their house. And, um, you know, it's different from guilt, right? Guilt says I should change a behavior. Something's wrong with the way that I did that. That can be okay. Shame says there's something wrong with me. And the last thing that we want to do is walk in front of someone we don't know and say, something is wrong with me, right? Mm -hmm. That feels so bad. And if we can, um, as a profession, as a, as a helping profession, you know, help people recognize that 
that nothing's wrong with you actually it's okay this is normal struggling with your couplehood struggling with the experience of parenting struggling with the transition in your identity as you become a parent that's normal stuff and we can um we can heal that shame it doesn't have to be um, something that gets carried and that creates harm Wow. Is that the same in, in queer couples? Like I'm thinking if there's, um, you know, uh, a lesbian couple, for example, one has given birth, one hasn't. Is there any research uh, into, you know, if the birth, is it something about giving birth or is it something about like men and women as far as like the relationship satisfaction? Because I, you know, we all know that many times the person that's experiencing the pregnancy maybe bonds with that pregnancy in a different way sooner than maybe the non-pregnant person, regardless of their gender identity um, or sexuality. Any, I, I know there's a lack of research in a lot of LGBTQ hmm. issues, hmm. but- There's a lack of research about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I mean, if there is a birth parent, we know that there's a sort of different hormonal picture mm -hmm. um, that does matter. That is not in terms of uh, bonding and closeness, which can happen with, with any adult who, who is falling in love with a child, right? But in terms of um, what it means for neurochemistry, what it means for anxiety, depression, um, sleep, um, all of those kinds of things that that is different from somebody who's just given birth than from somebody who hasn't. I think in um, in queer couples, there's also sometimes an unspoken um, assumption that you know oh, we're both women here, or we're both we both had to do a lot of adapting already, so we're going to be okay at this together. We're going to be the same, which is of course not true because sure we are not the same, right? Um, and even now, and my wife and I have three teenagers, and we are we agree about a lot of stuff about how we want our family to run, and we are not the same parent. We are not the same kind of um, we're not the same kind of person, and so um, sometimes that's great because it means that we bring a pretty big um, arena of experience to parenting our children, and sometimes it awful because we don't understand what the other one is doing and <laughs> yeah, um, why do you do it that way <laughs> and so I think we have space for that instead of assuming that well here we're both women so we're both going to be maternal and we're both going to be mm. the same at this we're we're not we're different people and so um as much as a straight couple we have to navigate those differences um there's just less support for it mm, and yeah. less sort of cultural um acceptance of it or cultural sort of preparation for it. Um, and, and, you know, less research for, for people in my role about, about how to help. So I fall back on what I know about couples period. Um, what I know about communication, what I know about adult development. Um, and I bring those things into my work with queer couples as much as I do with, with straight couples mm. and cis couples. I'm I'm surprised. I, I'm a surprised and not surprised when you said that one of the um, most common times for people to separate is during the first year of parenting. I am not surprised because I am a parent and I went through that <laughs> bombshell of a year and I literally the, my first 
birthday invitation for my oldest son's first birthday party did not say, come help us celebrate Pierce's birthday. It literally had a picture of my husband and I like embracing with thumbs up. And it said, <laughs> we survived the first year of parenting. Come celebrate with us. Pierce is turning one. And it had a picture of him <laughs> at the bottom <laughs> because that's what it felt like. It felt like, oh my God, we, we're coming out of this fog, rising like a phoenix from the ashes <laughs> of what our previous relationship was. Um, <laughs> but so I'm not surprised, but I am surprised at the fact that part of me also, like I suppose now that I've been seven years out and I'm an experienced parent now, um, I'm like, wait, no, hold on. It can get better. <laughs> like, this is so hard. Like, don't, you know, it's like, you know, I don't, I'm not that, you know, I feel like things are, are not going to get better in many situations without help. Um, I feel like sometimes people end up do separating maybe just at later times or other times maybe the intensity of the small kid years maybe just plays out and I'm sure some people ignore it long enough that it, you know, maybe it works itself out, but I don't think that's the healthiest way to go about it. <laughs> you know, to just wake up when they graduate from high school and be like, hey, who are you? <laughs> well, that leads people to come into my office terrified, right? Because they don't know now what. Um, and, it, you know, and I also see a lot of parents of teenagers, you know, who, when your kid is an adolescent, suddenly you have to change things up in terms of how you parent. And so, um, so I see a lot of couples at that time too. I can't help every couple. Nobody can, you know, some people are not going to make it and they're not meant to make it and it's okay. Um, and they may be better parents. Uh, my ex-husband and I are much better co-parents now that we are not living in the same house. Um, we share that responsibility much more and we have a, a very cooperative, larger family unit of these two households, three households, because um, I have a stepchild as well. So, um, you know, more than we could ever do living in the same place. Um, and, and it's not because we didn't try, but it's because we were not the same people in a way that would have been sustainable for us. So, you know, sometimes that is the right answer and the best answer for a family and for children. Um, but I will say that a lot of people, most people, um, if they come in before things are too far gone, can make some changes that are meaningful for them and that lead them to decide to stay together. Um, and so, again, if there's if there's a way that I can help to sort of normalize that experience, then that's what I want to do because this is a tough road. Parenting is not an easy journey. And so why should we already know how to do it? Why should we already know how to navigate one another through um, all of those experiences and changes that that makes no sense. It's okay to learn along the way and it's okay to need some help learning those things. Yeah. I mean, parenting is literally the hardest things I've, I've ever done, <laughs> you know, I, because it's so important to me. And I feel like a lot of people feel that way too. I'm sure you both can commiserate with me that I want to raise healthy, mentally, physically healthy children. I, you know, I want to change a lot of the things about the way that I was raised and, 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 and emulate other ways that I was raised. And it seems like a huge task. I feel like if it, if it feels like that to you, you know, that then it's cause you, you take it seriously, you know, it, mm -hmm. it, it's meaningful to you. Um, and acknowledging that it's hard and not always, you know, I remember one night with my son Pierce, who I have shared on this podcast before I had three years of infertility struggles, three losses before conceiving. I wanted this baby so much. I, I've always wanted to be a mother my whole life. I know not everybody feels that way, but I did when people said, when you grow up, what do you want to be? I want to be a mom. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so 
uh, I remember it was like the third night in a row that I hadn't slept at all. He had uh, hand, foot, and mouth disease. He had oh. sores all in his throat. You, you're nodding your head. It's like, it's horrible. It's so bad. Um, and uh, he would only want to be with me. He would only nurse. He wouldn't drink even breast milk from a bottle. He wanted nothing to do with my husband. I had not slept a wink, and I mean that, in three days. And he was just on me, and he was crying and, and pinching me, and obviously in pain. There was nothing that I could do more than what I'd already done as far as Tylenol and ibuprofen whatever. And I just remember staring at the ceiling and I remember thinking, this must be what hell feels like. <laughs> like I had this feverish child on me in the middle of July. He was crabby. My He was pulling at my breasts and nipples and I hadn't slept in three days. I was a shell of a human being. And I thought, this is hell. Like this, this is terrible. And then I felt immediately horrible for feeling that way. But objectively, like, let's just step back from that. Like that objectively is terrible. Like I had, I mean, I'm a human being. Like I loved this child more than anything else in the world. I, 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 I was giving him my all. I had nothing left to give. We eventually got over it. Um, you know, he got better, but you know, it's okay that not all parts of parenting are pleasant. There are plenty. I mean, how many times have you been covered in like bodily fluids where you're like, this is terrible. <laughs> and it's not that gross, but it's yeah, your right. Like, you know, I. <laughs> but that's yeah, also a moment just, too, uh, where know, if, if your partner says something just the right way, that could be monumentally wonderful. And if they say something just the wrong way, mm. then that <laughs> could set you off for years to come. Oh, you yeah. Know? yeah that how so they true. handle that moment. You know, if Paul had walked in and been like, all right, I'm going to work, so what's going to be for dinner? And you're like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> versus yeah. him being like, I'm taking off work today because you need help, right? Like there's very different ways of handling that. And when you're in survival mode, I mean, it's, I feel, I mean, it's, I'd love to hear your take on this, Rachel, but I feel like when you're in survival mode in those really, really difficult, sleep deprived, you know, um, challenging parenting situations, it, it's, it's like a human nature to kind of be like self-centered because you are in survival mode. Okay. You're shaking your head. So tell me, tell me more. <laughs> so, so, um, I haven't gotten quite this bold in my therapy with people, but but when the Gottmans do therapy themselves, they make their couples wear pulse oximeters. <gasps> and if the heart oh. rate goes above 95 beats a minute, everything's tabled while people calm themselves down. So I, oh, wow. I'm in the room with people sort of observing that they're getting flooded and I will, I'll pause the therapy and I'll ask, you know, if I can help them sort of find their center again. The reason for that is that when your heart rate is above 95 beats a minute, when you're terribly anxious, um, when you haven't slept for three days, you are in physiological fight or flight. So fight or flight is a really good system and you know it's designed to keep us from dying <laughs> in a dangerous situation, right? So if I'm walking down the street and a bear comes out from behind whatever's up there, my body is supposed to do a bunch of stuff to keep me from being eaten by a bear, right? And so I will get, um, my frontal lobe will turn off, first of all, because I don't need to make careful, thoughtful decisions at that time, like I need to go, right? 
Um, and my muscles will get tense. My breathing will get shallow. Um, blood flow will change and go to my major organs so that if I'm attacked by a bear, I'm less likely to die. All those things happen if you're having an argument, if you haven't slept for three days, um, if your kid has been screaming for an hour and a half. And so what you can't do is think, right? You can't choose your responses carefully from that. <laughs> and be tactful and compassionate right? in the way you respond. <laughs> and so this is great. This is a great system. If there's a bear, it's a terrible system at two o'clock in the morning with a screaming baby. It's awful, right? At, you know, I remember reading operating instructions by Anne mm -hmm. Lamont. Yeah. One of my favorite things in that is that, um, she looks at him sleeping and she writes that she thinks he's what angels look like and she could die of love when she sees him. And then she falls asleep and the baby starts to wake up and she thinks, Oh God, he's raising his loathsome reptilian head again. <laughs> that's so much what it's like, right? Because your body goes into this like mode of stop, you know, and you can't think. And so it's really important to be able to have some help around that stuff to, to be prepared in your couplehood to recognize when that's happening so that you don't kill each other, um, you know, or to know when, even as parents who are really committed to responding to our baby's cries, right? It's better to put your baby down than to like leave them out on the porch for the night. So if you need to stop and have a break for a second so that you can parent effectively and kindly, like, all good. So, you know, we talk about a lot of that stuff in therapy as well. Like, how do you know if your body has had it? How do you know mm. if your partner is getting to the place that they cannot think clearly anymore? Um, how do you spell each other when you're both pretty spent? Um, how do you do it as a single parent if nobody's mm. what do you do? Um, because um, that, that system, that fight or flight system that gets triggered is just part of being a person. It's going to come up. And so That's the so true. is to navigate it safely and well. One thing I learned in therapy um, when I went with my son, uh, I, I've shared in this podcast before that I suffer from postpartum OCD pretty severely. Mm -hmm. So I, um, and as our, our last mental health professional guest, Jill Felix, he said, there is no mental health without sleep, which you also mentioned, Rachel. Um, and that's hard with a new parent. If there's no mental health without sleep and you're not getting enough sleep, like that's kind of a problem. Um, but uh, she said, because, um, you know, everybody is saying that they're tired. And I know that a lot of um, birth givers feel like, okay, yeah, my partner might say that they're tired because, <laughs> but they don't even know. How, how many times I was up last night nursing or how many times that, you know, like, and they're tired, more tired than their pre-parent self because their pre-parent self might've been able to get eight hours straight in a row. But I've literally been up every hour and a half and had to be alert enough to nurse a baby. Right. So don't even tell me that you're tired. And I yeah. remember, um, fighting with my partner about this a lot. Like I'm tired. No, I'm tired. And she gave me one tool that I used was she said, you know, um, you know how like the, the terrorist threat is like, this is a yellow terrorist threat. It's orange. And now it's red, red terrorist threat. We're all going to get in our bomb shelter. Right. She's like, you have to be honest with yourself and your partner. Um, when you're at a red 
like sleep level. Like, um, and, and, you know, so if you say I need to take a nap today or he's like, but I didn't get any sleep. I want to go to bed first. Or like, if you're really at that point where you are going to have a nervous breakdown, if you don't get some sleep, you need to tell him this is a red level sleep issue. Mm -hmm. And that actually became a really good communication tool between us because I didn't always use it. You know, sometimes I was just run down, but that after the nights where, you know, he was up all night and, and nursing all night and not sleeping and crawling all over me. And I really needed to sleep or I was going to not be able to function, you know, I'm not going to fall asleep in my car, you know, I'd be like, this is a red level sleep situation. And it kind of took that resentment out of it. Cause I feel like sometimes, you know, I would be like, um, you know, telling him I needed sleep and he'd be like, well, I need to do this. And I'd be like, fine. You know, and I just like <laughs> resent him for it, you know, mm. but really I needed to be like, this is a red level sleep situation. <laughs> so, I love that. I love that. Do you want to, um, do you want to do some questions from our babies in mm -hmm. common audience? Jeanette, what do you think about that? Yes. That's what I was about to ask. Yeah. So we got a bunch, which we can't cover all of them. I don't think so, but well, maybe so. Okay. So you ready? Mm -hmm. So I'm home with my kids. I know my husband says he constantly feels pulled in too many directions. First he's at work, then he's home and immediately called on for attention by kids or by me who needs help and attention too sometimes. Would love some insight on how he can carve out some self-time too without me feeling bitter about it or him feeling like he's disappointing me or the kid. Everyone's emotional cup needs filling. Mm. That's such a good question. I don't know the answer. If, um, <laughs> I think, Just you know, do it. Just <laughs> do it. Carve out time. No. I mean, I think it's a, such a common parenting dilemma. You know, it's, it's really hard to find ways to be um, adult human beings separate from being parents. Um, you know, to be a couple, to be an individual can be really challenging. Um, some of it is a matter of, you know, like I said, the 31% of stuff that you can clean up, like, okay, who gives them a bath? What do we do if this happens? What if it's a red level sleep situation? <laughs> Make decisions about that stuff. Um, and and some of it is finding ways to spell one another. Um, you know, I, I am very often with, with um, straight couples, especially, um, trying to remind them that everybody's working, you know, even if as most is most common, um, you know, dad is at work all day and mom is home all day. Everyone's working when it's five o'clock, everyone's been working all day. Um, and so, everybody needs a break. And when you can sort of come to an understanding about what that feels like, then it's easier to, to help each other through it, to give each other a little space. Um, I'm a huge fan of date night. I think it's an enormous help to couplehood. I also recognize that not every baby will go for that. Um, I had one myself who was not okay when I left. And so I had some number of years where like it just really didn't work very well for me to for me to take space and I I understand that too. Um, you can squeeze date night into a brief conversation too. There's some strategies um, within the couples therapy method that I use um, to reduce stress at the end of a day um, when you're coming back together for the first time after having different tasks or being in different places that's sort of formulaic, like here's what you say, here's what you do, um, that you can do most of the time, even if you've got kids running underfoot, um, that just kind of takes everybody from like crisis management state to like, oh yes, I like you, hello, <laughs> you know, that's something we kind yeah. of get to do. Um, 
one of the easiest interventions, uh, which is actually hard if you're really mad at your partner all the time, but it, it really helps if you're able to do it. Um, there is some research behind kissing for six seconds. Right. Oh, like the I've whole give yourself, like hug for a minute or something. Like, oh, I like that. Releases oxytocin. Right. Oh, the love hormone. Yeah. We love oxytocin, don't we, Jeanette? Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, I've heard this with hugging, but I haven't heard this with specifically to kissing. Okay, it is hilarious to try to kiss someone for six seconds on purpose. Okay. <laughs> That's the other thing, is it makes you laugh, because you wind up, if you're kind of mad at each other, you wind up <laughs> like two, three, <laughs> and, and it makes everyone laugh. Um, it breaks the tension. But doing it also by by the time six seconds is over of like one one thousand two one thousand, you remember that I, I I like to kiss this person. This is an activity I once enjoyed. You know, <laughs> it helps you um, begin to reconnect, and it it kind of resets that like here we are in the same place, like we're a team here. Huh. And I even love that, that can bring it down. Yeah, I often ask couples to take sex off the table. Mm. I have never had to ask a couple to put it back on the table. <laughs> um, well, when you tell them they can't have it, then maybe they. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes it's it's so much what people are upset about. You know, they're coming in women's bodies after giving birth. Uh, what's happening with your hormones? And again, biologically, so that you don't have fourteen babies in a row, right? Like, right, um, yeah. To kind of want to take a break from all that stuff. Um, meanwhile, our partners don't always want to take a break from all that stuff. And, and if you're doing separate things all day and you're feeling resentful, um, can be really hard to reconnect and to want to be touched again by someone else or to, to want to offer your body up in, in some way. Um, and my usual reaction to that, um, often much to a spouse's dismay is fine. Don't do it. Just for now, you're just not going to do it, but we are going to because we're taking that off the table, we're going to make it less scary to kiss. We're going to make it less scary to hug because you're not going to have to worry about where it's leading. You just, mm -hmm. you can just touch one another and remember that that feels good. Remember oh, that that's a great, a great point. Um, you know, and, and it can be hard not to be connecting sexually with someone who used to be your sexual partner. Um, but again, for couples who heal their connection, heal their relationship, that part comes back. Um, if we can stop it from being a fight. Yeah. I heard once that once you're feeling a little bit better about each other, but if you still don't want to actually have sex, especially in that first year after having a baby, um, or if you're healing some rift that you had in your relationship and you just want to start slow is, is just be in bed almost naked together or then just be naked together and be like, we're not having sex. We're just going to cuddle. And or we're just, like you said, like just kissing, but we're not going to go there. And then eventually you get to a point where like, maybe we hope days, weeks, months later, you're like, okay, I can't do this naked thing anymore. We have to do something about it. <laughs> you know, and I think I often, um, you know, when we come back around to those conversations, I'll say the, the partner who's more reluctant gets to make the call about mm -hmm. Because as soon as you introduce pressure, then you've set yourself back. So, yeah. um, but it, you know, again, it's, it's something that, that comes back as you reconnect because what makes us want to have sex in the first place, right? Is that drive to be together, that closeness, that drive to, um, to be intimately connected to another person. And so when couples are completely disconnected, it's no great shock that, that there's a drop in sex drive. 
Um, and so rebuilding the connection, creating a new connection, creating new ways of communicating brings that back. Yeah. Somebody also commented being period touched period out period. <laughs> yeah. So which you kind of covered. Um, so somebody says, so how do you navigate when you have different views on holistic interventions versus Western medicine? Mm. That might so, be one of those value things you were talking mm -hmm. about, Rachel, right? It is. And, uh, you know, so immediately my questions for that person become, you know, where'd you get this? What does it mean to you? What's the stuff that's important? What's the stuff that you're afraid of? Um, what is everybody's comfort level with, with learning about this stuff? How can you, um, instead of fighting each other about it, how can you how can you get to what's underlying it? Is it that you just assumed that this is how you would do it and you're not? And so now we need to learn a different thing or is it, um, you know, you have a real fear of one way or another based on something in your own history? Like, what is it? Um, I think it's really common for couples to disagree about major parenting things. Um, and again, the goal isn't always to compromise, right? The, the mom who I'm being stereotypical, let me switch it. The dad who wants to go all holistic is not going to come halfway and feel good about it to the mom who wants to go all Western medicine, right? Or vice versa. So again, understanding, learning about what really is driving those wishes, those needs, those fears, those um, hopes. Um, often sort of brings about a solution that works. Um, you know, I've seen couples decide to do, like they start with the holistic stuff and if they're not having a problem resolved in a way that feels okay to them, then they have an agreement to go to the pediatrician or vice versa. Um, uh, sometimes there are people like around here in New Hampshire licenses naturopaths. They can bill insurance, they can run blood work. Um, and so I've had a couple of clients who decide that they're going to see a naturopath in Nashua because that's going to give them sort of a blend of those mm. doing things. I, there's so many ways to be creative about this stuff. Um, but what I want to know before we start trying to figure out what is the answer to how you're going to do it is what does it mean to you? Where did it come from? Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's so, so it's, yeah, I, I think that's a great point that the thing, the skills and things that you can learn in, in couples therapy is not just, okay, here's a, um, a mediator, right? That can um, help us find a solution. It's not just about, okay, I want this and he wants that. What solution can you come up with, Rachel? It's, you know, why do you want these things? Where is this coming from? Because I'm sure that the, the, the reasons why those couples are having that issue in that particular instance, be it about medicine, um, maybe play out in other ways in their relationship as well. It might not just be that whatever is causing them to have these values about medicine is just about medicine. It probably is lots of other things too. Of course. And I think, you know, I mean, I see it with all kinds of stuff, co-sleeping, breastfeeding. Ah, sure. Um, you know, those kinds of things where it's really important to one parent and the other parent is like, what are you doing? Um, and some of it is information giving with that stuff too, right? Um, and and some of it is is really getting back to what's going on underneath all this and how, you know, for co-sleeping, for example, one of the common things that, that I hear partners worry about is we'll never have sex again because the baby's in the bed, right? 
Um, so speaking to the question of, is my partner still sexually attracted to me? Do we have a sexual future? Can we connect in that way? None of those things are about the baby. Right. Nor is it always about the bed. Right. Sure. Exactly. So if we can get to, to what's under it, then it's a whole different conversation. It's a different kind of solution. Wow. That's, that's so Mm. true. It's not, it's often not about breastfeeding. It's often not about the baby. It's often not about, you know, when you're starting solid foods, it's maybe you don't trust my opinion Mm. about things or my research about things, Mm. right? You always make the decisions or I supposed Mm. to default to you. I, Mm. that's so, that's so true. Or I want you to make the decision all the time. I don't want to have to. I don't want to have to. (laughs) My husband and I just, we had to just decide on some things. Like I was like, you know, it's just easier. He's like, you're a nurse. I just, defer to you. I was always like, why don't you care about right. whether we circumcise our son or not? You know, I was like, you need to care about this, <laughs> you know? And he was like, but I just, I just, you're so good at that. And I'm like, you know what? In other ways, I just default to him when it comes to like what internet we're going to get. I'm like, I don't care. Like, don't show me a thousand different computers. Just pick one for me, you know? So <laughs> it's, it's yeah. so true. I, I took it as like, you don't care, but really he was like, I, I trust you so much. I, I, mm. I value what you have researched, you know? I'm like, oh, that makes me love you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. When you get what it really is, is a different conversation. Yes. Wow. This has been such such an interesting, informative. Mm. I love these podcasts today. I I learned so much. So fun. (laughs) Can I can I give you um for for people who are sort of in the trenches right now, I have a I have a formula. Mm -hmm. Um, Ooh, I'd love to hear mm. it. Yes, please. That that I I teach every couple I ever work with and most individuals as well. Um, So anybody who's got a baby will recognize the thing that a baby does. um, And I'm pretty much quoting the Gottman stuff as I tell you this story. But if you have a baby that you engage with some kind of stimulus, right, the baby will go like, what's this? And you'll see that receptive posture. You'll see the eyes open. You'll see a change in how much they're sucking because they're taking in information, right? They're open to it. You can also get a baby to go, what the hell is this, right? <laughs> and, and that looks different. That looks like turning away. That looks like pupils narrowing. That, that looks different. Um, that looks like distress. That actually looks like trying to crawl back up my uterus with my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> so, with the possible uterus exception, we do not outgrow that. We don't yeah. outgrow that. Hmm. And so for the adult in your life, you can engage the what's this about the things that are important to you, or you can engage the what the hell is this, and you will get mm. a very different response. And so when we come at each other and we say, you, I've already shut you down. You mm. have a blood pressure response to being treated like that, right? You have an immediate what the hell is this, and you are not listening. Mm. And so part of the task of communicating as parents is engaging what's this? What is this? What's happening? What do you need? What's up? Um, and we've talked about that sort of in the field before in terms of I statements, which help, right? I statements are, this is about me. And so you should listen to me and it's not really about you at all. Um, but they're not quite enough. And so there's a formula that, um, feels really awkward at first. And then everybody keeps using, cause it works very, very, very well, which is I feel about what I need. I feel really frustrated 
about being home all day alone with the baby and you coming in and not saying hello, that's the about what, I need you to stop for three seconds and give me a hug when you get here. Uh-huh. Here's the feeling I'm having. Here's the thing I'm having the feeling about. Here's what I need. That engages what's this. And especially for parents, right? Again, we are wired to take care of little cute things, right? So we're already <laughs> in that receptive state of like, how can I keep this thing safe? And so when you can engage your partner in, what's this? How can I help you? Um, it's a very different response than what do you need from me now? Hmm. I feel, feeling I'm having, about what, here's what's leading me to have that feeling I need. That is an awesome yeah. formula. <laughs> and everyone's going to know it's a formula. Like it's, it's kind of awkward at first, but yeah. it accomplishes so much. And I, you know, I tell individuals to go home and say, I learned a formula. I'm going to talk to you in this formula. And, and at first it's weird. You're like, I feel like I hate this. And what to <laughs> say, you know, but children can learn this. Teenagers can learn this. You know, couples can learn this. And once you start doing it, you know, I feel totally frustrated. You guys, the sink is full of dishes. Again, I need you to load the dishwasher after you make your lunch. That's what I say in my house. (laughs) (laughs) Just to throw something out there. Yeah, I love that. that. You left stuff in the sink again. Which? Mm. How many times do I have to tell you to clean up after yourself? 10 million. That's the answer. Let's talk about what that feels like and what I need from that. That that actually is a even better way um, to describe something that I learned uh, in therapy, which was um, if, you know, my reaction was going to be reactionary to something that my husband did. Let's say, you know, uh, why did Jesus, this, you know, the, the laundry's all over the dining room table again. You know, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, I, I need to, I need to put dinner somewhere. So can you help me, you know, so yeah. that, you know, can you help me clear off the table is, is, is what I need. I need help clearing off the table. What at the, I, what we, nobody needs at that moment is me just yelling at someone that there's laundry on the table because <laughs> that doesn't help me get dinner on the table. <laughs> so right. I love that. Uh, you know, I feel about what, and I need, uh, what needs do you have that aren't being met? That might be another thing to think about, right? Like if you're upset and frustrated about something, well, what is the need that you have that isn't being met? Is it that you just need that physical connection right now? Will that diffuse? that, you know, take this, take that. You just got home. I've been with the kids all day. Like that, that, that six second kiss maybe (laughs) can, can reset um, things. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Rachel, for being here and sharing so much. I hope our listeners consider implementing some of these suggestions that you Mm -hmm. made today Um, and consider getting some professional support too. Like we were saying at the beginning therapy for everybody. I feel like um, that's a great bumper sticker. It should be a great bumper sticker. I'll have one made for you, Rachel. Um, I feel like, you know, if you're pregnant with your first baby, especially, you've done so many things to help you be as healthy as possible for this baby, right? I'm sure that you are taking your prenatal vitamin and going to your appointments. And I'm sure that you're trying to exercise and eat healthy. Um, You know what? Your mental health is important too. And so, um, you know, even if there isn't some big glaring issue in your life or your relationship or your past that you feel like you need to work on, I feel like establishing a relationship with a therapist when you are not newly postpartum and hormonal and in pain and recovering from surgery or vaginal delivery and just having a few sessions, you know, it doesn't have to be anything like 
you know, years and years of therapy. It can be a, a few sessions to work out some anxieties about becoming a new parent. And then you have that connection with somebody that you can, you know, more easily con connect with after the baby is born. I think it's something to really consider. I feel like it should be part of standard prenatal care, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. you know, I hope that we've helped to kind of decrease some of those um, barriers to therapy. I mean, one thing the pandemic has done, I know that we mentioned this at the beginning, Rachel, you're seeing people virtually is virtual teletherapy, man. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan. <laughs> It's really made finding the right therapist even easier, I feel like, because maybe you couldn't see that therapist that your friend really loves that helped her with her X, Y, and Z because she's in New Orleans, but now maybe you mm. can. You know, I don't know. I just feel like yeah. the world is our oyster. So if anybody wants to reach you, Rachel, your website happens to be birchtreepsychology.com. Beautiful. And we are looking forward to our next episode. We'll be focusing on pregnancy and birth, but with a bit of a different perspective. We'll be speaking with one of our babies in common moms, Kristen Johnson, about her experience after having her own two children as a gestational carrier. So that's going to be a very different episode. So cool. Well, yes, again, thank you, Rachel. And we hope everyone will visit babiesincommon.com slash show to see all our previous episodes and see what we have coming up. Our show is also available as a video recording and as a podcast on our website on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, we'd really appreciate you writing a positive review on social media or the sites where you hear podcasts. And as always, remember that Babies in Common is a community for you. After all, we all have Babies, babies in, in Common. common. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Rachel. Have a good night, everybody. Thank you for joining us on the Babies in Common podcast. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate a positive review on whichever podcast player platform you use, as that helps more people find our podcast. We wish you a fantastic day that includes learning at least one new thing, finding something to giggle about, and getting at least one hug, even if it's from yourself.